serve on the pastoral staff here at Thrive Church, I've been noticing that there's been a rising tide of awareness uh, over the last couple of years related to uh, abuse and specifically sexual harassment, especially in the marketplace. Um, 2017, it seems like all of this erupted onto a national level through various media outlets as there was this growing number of accusations against certain executives in the film industry. And then um, a celebrity, uh, a woman celebrity, posted something, I think it was on Twitter, where she said, um, let me see that slide, Jason, yeah, here it is, uh, Alyssa Milano, and uh, she suggested that anybody who had ever uh, experienced either assault or, or abuse or harassment use this uh, hashtag me too in order uh, for the rest of the world to see just the extent of that problem now if you don't know what a hashtag is it's it's simply um, <clears throat> a character uh, it's the number sign or you know like I remember we used to call it the pound sign I don't know if we necessarily call it that anymore now they call it a hashtag and it took me forever to figure out what that actually was but now if what you do is you put a hashtag in front of um, a word or a phrase without any spaces, and it allows certain computer programs to track that topic and how it's trending, okay? Uh, and there are massive computers that do this. It, we call it the era of big data, and trust me, it's a little scary, but the point is, is that in this case, it actually served something good. And for about three or four days in October of last year, my Facebook feed blew up with Me Too. And I got to be honest with you, it shocked me. People that I had known for years were hashtagging Me Too, and I thought, oh my goodness, I had no clue that this was going on. And so when we see this idea of the extent of it, I, I, was, I was at once shocked and sickened as were a lot of my colleagues. And then last month, last month, um, if you were following the story, the doctor who served Team USA Gymnastics was sentenced something like 300 years for sexually abusing hundreds of girls, female athletes, hundreds. And in a surprising move, the judge, also a female, put the accused on the stand and made him listen as one after another of his victims point blank told him what he did to their lives. It was truly an astonishing moment and there were um, a lot of noteworthy things that came out of that, but ultimately speaking we have a celebrated program there is there is there is mom there is the flag there is apple pie there is usa gymnastics and yet there's this dark underbelly to it that has been going on for decades and none of us knew and recently i saw a facebook um, post by someone here in our congregation actually a series of them and it said very simply, hey, look, leaders around the country, pastors, you need to be speaking out about this. And, and can I be honest with you? I got a little agitated. I got a little agitated about that. 
Uh, because I thought, how on earth am I supposed to talk about this? How is it that I, I have no idea? And I actually sat down and started typing a very clever rebuttal, I'm sure, and something checked me and I stopped. Delete, 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 delete. And I'm so glad I did because over the next couple of days, <clears throat> God started doing a work. And it has to be God because I was agitated. And sometimes when I'm agitated, it takes God and his infinite wisdom to kind of poke and prod me out of my agitation. Because you know what? I have no problem standing in front of a congregation and talking about natural disasters. And by the way, those are not the wrath of God against a group of people. I have no problem talking about national tragedies. And I had no idea we were going to get another one this week. Too many deaths. Why on earth would I not want to speak about this? What was it about it that just made me get agitated at first? I, I, I got to be honest, it, it dawned on me, I'm like, I, I've got to talk about this. Because it's in the church as much it is, as it is anywhere else. The church should be a place that at least tries to protect the most vulnerable. And let's put it this way. If I can put this in the most vivid way possible, if the church cannot publicly try to push back the darkness in some way, no one in the right mind is going to believe that we can help them privately or personally. That's what's at stake here. If we can't stand up and say, that's wrong, no one's going to believe that we can say we can help. You with me? And on another hand, this is exactly a place where we can actually follow Jesus. You know, we can see this. And so I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. This biography of Jesus written by a Greek physician, Luke. And I'm going to be in chapter 7. I'll have it on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you or if you don't have a Bible app with you, but you might want to pull this one out and read this one a couple of times. And I guarantee you, this will be a familiar passage to you if you have spent any amount of time in the church. But hopefully, hopefully we can gain some new insight. And my goal here is to go through this this passage a little bit. I'm going to make some comments as we go along, and eventually I'm going to offer you a thought. So let's begin to read this incredible story. When one of the Pharisees, that's one of the religious leaders of the time, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, hold on. It's not uncommon for Jewish uh, religious leaders to invite one another over for dinner because what they would do is they would sit, they would eat, they would have a conversation and typically talk about Jewish law, about Jewish religion, about Yahweh, about the things that you know, these guys talk about. And in Luke, at least to this point in chapter 7, the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jesus are not necessarily at odds with one another. That happens a little bit later, largely because of conversations like this that Jesus has with them. And, and there was a constant questioning back and forth because if you were uh, a religious uh, leader and you came to a town, then the local re religious leader would invite you over largely to test you. 
and to make sure that your theology was square. Okay, so this is not an uncommon thing to occur. And we find here in, in verse 37, a woman with a reputation shows up. And, and, and this, is, this is interesting. Because I think this becomes a story of reputations. You got the reputation of the Pharisee, you got the reputation of this woman, and you have the reputation of Jesus. And let's go on with the story. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. There's a lot of speculation on why that woman was there. How did she get in? Um, was she there before? Was this an open-air kind of venue? But you know what? The text doesn't tell us anything about that. It doesn't tell us anything about her. It merely says a woman who lived a sinful life showed up. She's standing behind Jesus, and she's weeping, profoundly weeping. Can you imagine the amount of tears it would take to actually wet somebody's feet? That's a lot of tears. And then on top of it, she wipes his feet with her hair. Her hair. Think about that depth of anguish and pain and suffering. We don't know anything about her, but we do know something about Jesus, about his reputation. He's a healer. He's a dispenser of grace and mercy, and she hears about him, and she wants to show up, and then just pours it all out. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to suspend all the things you learned in Sunday school and all the things you learned in church and I want you to imagine yourself in that scene. Or if you're watching a movie, I don't care. Pick one. The point is, how do you feel about that scene now? How do you feel about her? And look at what the religious leader's reaction is. Next slide. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. <laughs> Ouch. Kind of hurts. And then Jesus tells a story. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. This is very rabbinic of him, by the way, telling a story. Tell me, teacher, he said, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Well, yeah. Jesus, I love this, you have judged correctly. You have judged correctly. And then he goes on and applies the lesson. He turned toward the woman. He said, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wet them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves a little. 
questions and answers and stories. And there's a powerful lesson of observation here, a way of seeing more than just the circumstances that are in front of you. And moreover, what we see time and time again throughout the biographies of Jesus is how he elevates the value of women. We see this quite a bit in, in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 4, he sits and he talks with a Samaritan woman in public. If you are a Jewish rabbi, you do not talk to women, period. Let alone a Samaritan woman who is a foreigner, and you certainly don't do it by yourself. And here he was, sharing good news with this person because she desperately needed it. He also, in John chapter 8, gives them equal protection underneath the Jewish law. When a woman caught in adultery is brought before him, they ask him to pass judgment on her, and he says, well, where's the dude? Because the law says you've got to have both. They were violating the, their own law that they were trying to use against Jesus, and he gave her equal prote protection under the Jewish law. Profound moment. And then, in John chapter 20, when he rises from the dead, the first person he talks to is a woman. The classic definition of an apostle is someone who has seen the risen Lord and is given a message to give to someone else. Under that definition, that woman was an apostle to the apostles. If you were a first century Jew reading this, this would have taken your breath away because this is what Jesus did. Now, our 21st century society is a little bit different. We don't necessarily see that context. But you must understand what's going on in that time frame. And this was new. This was different. This was profound, what Jesus was doing here. By the way, the woman that Jesus talked to at the resurrection, there is some evidence to suggest it is the same woman who is pictured here in this story. But there's a pivotal question here. There's something that we need to wrestle with, and it's simply this. Do you see this woman? Do you see her? Simon, you're a religious leader in this town. Do you see this woman, or can you only see her reputation? Simon, can you only see her sinful past? Simon, can you only see her body? Are you missing the pain and the tears? And that same question echoes down throughout the centuries, and it applies to us. It gives us pause to do some self-reflection on how we treat other people, because we have a problem in this society. We are a voyeuristic culture. The internet and TV connects us with other people without any type of relationship. And quite frankly, it's easier to watch than it is to actually get involved. And by the way, that's not going away. And on top of that, because we live in a voyeuristic society, we also objectify women and men. It goes both ways. We make them objects, not human beings, actually objects. And we treat people as commodities for our utility or for our pleasure. And the truth of the matter is all human beings have hopes and dreams. They all have desires and they aspire to something else. That includes the person that you lust after on the screen. And it also includes the person that is taking your order at the restaurant or checking your groceries at the grocery store. 
much more subtle. But we objectify them all. The truth, as we understand it, is that each person you meet is made in the image of God and they bear the imprint of the divine. How dare we cheapen that? They have infinite value to the creator and sustainer of the universe. So much so that he died for them. Would you? For those of you who uh, identify with the Me Too movement, whether you did it publicly on some social media platform or if you identify with it privately in your own heart because it's just too painful to deal with. I am so sorry that happened to you. And you need to hear that. It wasn't right. And somebody cares that it did. And I want you to know, before you walk out of this place, we have resources that we will connect you with if you need it. Please don't walk out of here thinking that you don't know where to turn. We can help. And I also want you to, to hear this too. In this church, we believe that Jesus is still in the business of mending. Because if we don't, we just need to shut our doors. A little bit later on, um, when we're finishing up, I'm going to go sit over there. And uh, I would be honored if I could pray with you. If you want. Uh, there's no pressure. You want to know what changed my mind about preaching this message? The thing that really kind of tipped me over the edge, that thing that God used to kind of agitate me beyond my agitation? There's a video... Um, it went viral. But there was a, a father at the trial of this, this doctor up in Michigan. He had three daughters, all of which had been abused by this man. There he is. He asked the judge, hey, can I get five minutes alone with this guy? <laughs> and the judge said, no, that's not how the justice system works. So he rushed the stand. <laughs> Fortunately, the uh, bailiffs and whatnot, that one guy's trying to climb over the wall. Um, they, they restrained him. They kept him from doing it. And I have two daughters. I pray that they would be healthy and safe from this kind of thing. I pray that I never have to deal with that. But can I tell you, I empathize with the rage of that dad. Deeply. Scary. And I finally figured out why. It's because what happens to my daughters happens to me. They're bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. What happens to them happens to me. Not in the same way, but I certainly feel when things happen to them. I feel when they laugh. I feel when they cry. I feel when they're disappointed, when they're learning something new and it's painful. I feel all of that just like most parents do. This 
is a church family. We are a community. What happens to you happens to us. That's why when Paul writes a letter to the Galatians, he says to them, bear one another's burdens. Carry for them because they are so heavy. Yes, what happens to you happens to us. We bear that together. That's part of the economy of God. And so we've decided that we were going to hashtag me three. I don't want to do anything to diminish the Me Too movement. That's not my intention here. But what I want to make sure is that people in this church understand that we stand with our sisters who are suffering. Me three. If you hear nothing else of what I said today, if, if all of it is, is something that you can file away and, and, and never remember, here's the one thing I want you to remember when you walk out the door. Just the one thing. If you hear nothing else, Jesus will heal you. This church will fight for you. And you are not alone. You are not alone. Hashtag me three.